And if you have your Bibles tonight, I hope that you do, go ahead with me to Revelation chapter number 8 as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. So tonight is Revelation chapter number 8. The key concept tonight, the theme that we're going to be looking at, is this vision unfolding of the outpouring of judgment on an unrepentant world. And so it's pretty heavy stuff in Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9. And we'll just get right into it this evening. But first of all, remember, previously in our study in Revelation, we saw the opening of the first six seals. It's been a couple of weeks, uh, but back in chapter 7, we looked at the seal, or chapter 6, we saw the seals being opened. And then in chapter 7, we saw the 144,000 witnesses. If you remember, the last time the theme was a much more hopeful theme because, yes, there's judgment, but in the midst of the judgment, God has his remnant people, the people that he's calling out. But after we turn our attention from that remnant people in chapter number 7, we come to chapter 8, and the focus is now not on those who come to faith, but those who persist in unbelief. And so it's a, it's a serious kind of warning as we come to this passage. So let's look here in chapter 8 and verse number 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal... Now let's just get a little bit of a reminder here. Who's opening the seals? The Lamb. Jesus is opening the seals. So you can we can kind of get lost in, in where we've been and where we've been studying. But in chapter 8, verse number 1, it's Jesus opening the seventh seal. It's the final seal. So you've got to put the, the whole scene together. And because you know it's hard to remember if we do it week over week over week, but as the whole scene unfolds, we're in the throne room of heaven. The book comes out, the scroll comes out. Who is worthy to open the book? No one is worthy. Oh, but the Lamb enters the scene. The Lamb of God, He is worthy. He has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. So now Jesus begins to unroll the seals. The last one is the seventh seal. Now you notice I put a little chart on your handout tonight so that you can understand how all of this progresses as it unfolds. There are the seven seals, obviously, we've already discussed that. Now, those seven seals, I think, should be thought of as the entire unfolding of the judgment in the book of Revelation. With the opening, with the opening of the seventh, did, we, did you get a handout? Anybody get you? You got one. All right. With the opening of the seventh seal, now we're introduced in chapter 8 to seven trumpets. Now, one thing that's not on here is when we get to the fifth trumpet, we're going to be introduced to three woes. So if you take notes, you can sneak those in there as well. Trumpets five, six, and seven are referred to as the three woes. And then as the seventh trumpet sounds, then you have the unfolding of the seven bowl or vial judgments as they're known. So all of that unfolds progressively, and we, we watch that sequence take place. So what's interesting now is it says in verse number 1 of Revelation 8 that when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. 
That's a significant amount of time for just quiet. And I believe, as my understanding of the book of, of Revelation, that you and I will be there at this moment yet to come in history. Why do you think the silence is there? Any thoughts? I mean, the Bible doesn't give us an explicit answer, but what, do you, what are your thoughts on the moment of 30 minutes of silence in heaven? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, I think that's it. Any other thoughts on it? One last chance. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was just going to say it's a very solemn time. I mean, you know, judges tell you whatever it is. Obviously, you're afraid or whatever. Right. Yeah, I think because what is realized, whatever is seen, and we're about to see it un unfold, but what comes to pass is something that no one has ever seen before. Because in chapter number five, we need to understand this. In chapter number five, we saw the curtain pulled back on the glory of God. Right? I mean, we saw the thunder around the throne and the, the four and twenty elders and the casting of the, uh, the casting of the crowns before him. And so we've already seen the pulling back of the glory and majesty of God. But with the sounding of the seventh seal, the curtain is being pulled back on what attribute of God? Yeah. His wrath. His judgment. And there's a, you know, I didn't think of this, uh, of this passage, so I hope I can find it right now. But go in the book of Romans. Turn back to the book of Romans. I, I just thought of this um, this passage right now. If you go back to the book of Romans in verse number one, Romans one. So journey with me to Romans chapter 1. And I want you to notice verse number 8. 18, I'm sorry. Verse number 18. Notice verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Verse number 18, you see the wrath of God is, go is going to be revealed. Okay? There's another reference in the um, in this book. Skip over to chapter 2 and verse number 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, or, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Now look at verse 4. 
If you allow me to paraphrase, you read it as you read it as a paraphrase. Do you despise God's goodness? He's so forbearing, he's so long-suffering. And he said, don't you realize that God's goodness, how good God is, should lead you to what? Are you looking at it? What should the goodness of God lead people to? Repentance. But now you need to see verse number 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart. What is being described there? Please help me in verse number 5. What, what, how would you describe, how would you paraphrase that? After thy hardness and impenitent heart. Stiff neck. Okay, stiff neck. That's a common phrase in the Old Testament. Stiff neck. How, how would you describe the, this? What is he saying about these individuals here? Yeah. Unwilling to repent. Anything else? Yeah, almost as if they're, they're shaking their fist at God. They're scoffing at his goodness. They're scoffing at his goodness. And are, their hearts are just like, hardness is the idea of just nothing's going to penetrate. It's like you can hear it, hear it, hear it. It just bounces off, bounces off, bounces off, bounces off. It means nothing. It means nothing. Now, who is Paul speaking to in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1? He's speaking to people that are alive. At the time of the writing, right? Not a trick question. He's speaking to people in A.D. 50 or 60 or whatever in Roman times. And he's saying, he's saying, listen, and he's speaking to religious people. He says, you're, you're, there's a hardness to you. God has been so good and God's goodness isn't causing you to repent. It's actually making you even harder. Now, speaking to people that are alive in this day and age, let's say the church age from this Roman age right up until now. Paul is speaking to people who will not respond to the goodness of God, but are hard and impenitent, unwilling to make it right. Look what he says in verse 5. After thy hardness and impenitent heart, what's the next phrase? Treasurous up. What's it mean to treasure something up? What does he mean treasure it up? You're treasuring something up. Saving it. Storing it. Locking it away. You're, you're treasuring up. What is being treasured up? Wrath. So, but, but you see what's happening though? What's happening is the more that people are resisting the goodness of God, Every time there's a resisting of his goodness, what's happening? What's increasing? Yeah, the judgment is intensifies. He says, he says, you resist the goodness of God and you're treasuring, you're treasuring up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's saying, he's pleading with a world that doesn't want to know Christ. He's pleading with a world and saying, don't you realize that the more you resist Christ, the more you're storing up a greater judgment for what day? For the day when that curtain of God's wrath is pulled back that we're reading about in the book of Revelation right now. So it's a solemn warning to people that, are, that re resist. And now we are in Revelation 8 and we see fulfilled what Paul spoke about 
in Romans chapter 2. So, Sorry, I lost my microphone here, and Steve just sent me a text message saying that you can't hear me. It's because I dropped my microphone. You're right. So there is this idea of... Say that again, what you said about Sodom and Gomorrah? Right. Chorazin and Bethsaida. He said that your judgment will be worse that if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So this idea, though, that what we're seeing here is God in his righteous, holy wrath. And we only, we've never seen, humanity has never seen God in all of his glory and wonder and beauty, but also never seen him in all of his righteous judgment and wrath. In the book of Revelation, we're getting a fuller view of who God is, both in, in the wonder of his love and in the fear of his wrath. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because people are, people are, often, um, people are often drawn towards um, the, the love of God and not the wrath of God for obvious reasons, but only a God that is maximally... If he's maximally loving, then he has to be maximally just at the same time. All that God is is holy and, and ultimate. All right, let's, let's read on now. So we've got a lot to cover. I don't want to go long tonight. So now we see these, these under the seventh seal, we see the trumpets unfolding. So seven trumpets. Verse 2, I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. All right, so first we see this idea that there are seven trumpets. Now, some people have commented, some people have commented that these seven, that they've referenced the fact that, oh, well, see the timing of the rapture. The Bible says that the rapture will happen at the last what? At the last trump. So therefore, that must be what this is. Um, in fact, a friend of mine said that to me just recently, and I disagree with that. And I want to show you why, because these are different. In fact, so take your Bible really quickly and go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 52. This is the reference that was being referred to, and you've got to pay close attention to this. So if you have your mark in if you have your mark in Revelation eight, look at look at verse two again. I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them to them were given seven trumpets. So the angels have these seven trumpets; they were given to them. Now in First Corinthians fifteen and verse fifty-two, uh, I've seen people mention this. Uh, you can go back up to verse fifty-one. Behold, I show you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So, 
Some people will try to make the argument, well, th that last trump, these are the seven trumpets in Revelation, so that must be what, what's going on here. I think there's a couple of arguments that, that you could make against that. One would be, well, we're clearly promised that we're not going to be appointed to the wrath of God. But another is, now, compare this to 1 Thessalonians. Now, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the other description of this. So, we see the last trump, seven trumpets that the angels have. And now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall, shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So interesting here, this is referred to singularly in verse number 17, or verse number 16, as the trump of God, as opposed to what we have in Revelation chapter Eight, which are seven trumpets belonging now to whom? The angels. These are seven trumpets of the angels. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see the trump of God. So it's not a, um, it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that there are different trumpets with different significance. So to make that, to conflate these and say that they must be equal is, is not a particularly strong argument here. So, just wanted to mention that. Now let's get a little bit more specific as we look at it. He says in verse number 3, that another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense. So this harkens back to the temple worship. There would be a censer, which is a container that would have held the coals, and there'd be another container with the incense. And so obviously this is speaking, this is worship, worship terminology. And it says that with it, uh, he should offer with it the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire, with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. I think these prayers here that are being symbolized in this, I think these are the prayers that we saw of the martyred saints earlier in the book of Revelation, where they said, how long, Lord? How long will you wait? I think this is a picture that God is saying the judgment is coming. And here it is. Your prayers have been heard. The angel signifies with the censer and with the incense that your prayers have been heard. God is now preparing to make everything right. Answer the prayer of the saints throughout all the ages that this world would be made, uh, made right again. And God will do that by unfolding judgment and then creating a new heaven and new earth. And so verse 6, the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded. And there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burnt up. So we see the first trumpet sounds, and there's the destruction of one-third of the vegetation on the earth. The second angel sounds, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. 
The third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. We've seen in the Bible God have God turning water into blood and the judgments that came on that came to the Egyptians. We see that again with the second. So these are Again, I'm not going to say a lot about these. Many people have speculated as to how this can happen. The truth is we don't have any idea exactly how this, it's going to happen. People will look at some of what takes place and they'll say, well, this, these could be meteors and there could be this or that. And all that is fine. It's all speculative. It's not my purpose. We just know the Bible says it's going to happen and how uh, will be revealed eventually. So the first one, a third of the grass. The second one, a third of the sea creatures and a third of the ship. So all the shipping commerce comes to a screeching halt. Boy, we've experienced that in the pandemic. Do you remember the news seeing the, the ships not able to get into the ports and things like that, and how that affected supply chain issues and things. So all of these, what's happening is the order of the world, both naturally and in, in the natural order of nature, and then in the order of commerce, is it's falling apart. Sin, sin, is, sin has been slowly destroying the perfect world that God has created. And now God is finishing that. Verse 10, and, all, and the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. It fell upon the third part of the rivers and the fountains of waters. So we're seeing this idea of thirds. The name of the star is called Wormwood. The third part of the waters became Wormwood. And men died of the waters because they were made bitter. So that's three. The fourth angel sounded. So now the fourth trumpet. The third part of the sun was smitten. And the third part of the moon. And the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it. And the night Likewise, I'm sure there's some astronomer, Christian astronomer, that would, that would carefully explain all of how this would work. I'm not that guy. I'll have to go to another Bible study for, for that. But let's go on now. Let's look on what happens next. And verse 13, I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice. Now here they are, the three woes. Woe, woe, woe. That means be sorrowful. Mourn. He says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet and of the three angels which are yet to sound. And so it's being intensified. And so in verse number 1 of chapter 9, the fifth angel sounds. And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now up until now, notice this now, up until now, we have seen the four Trumpets sounding, and all of them have been, have, they've not been really personified, right? They've been circumstantial or calamitous. But in this, it's described in personal language, right? He says, the fifth, angels, the fifth angel sounded, a star fell from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And, and he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit. 
as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So when we think about this language, what, what, what comes to mind? Maybe some of you have studied this before. What, what, what is being unlocked here? Who is unlocking? What are, how can we understand this? Well, first of all, let's think about the pit. What is the pit? Huh? The great abyss. In fact, it, is, it can be translated as the abyss. I think what we're seeing here is the unlocking. In fact, the Bible says that the, we spoke about this previously, that there are fallen angels reserved in darkness until the last day. So I think what you're seeing here is an unlocking, an unlocking and a loosing of some of the most horrible demonic forces that are not in action in the world at this point. I, I think th this is just really, you know, it's something for us to, to realize that you know, what we're reading about right now, it seems so otherworldly to us, right? But the story you're, you, what you're reading about in Revelation 9 is just as much scripture as reading Jesus speak about the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, this is a reality. This is given for us to understand, to realize and so this unlocking of the bottomless pit, you noticed a star fall from heaven to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Who could this be? Well, I think what we could be looking at here is the devil himself. Lucifer himself. Now why, thinking about the word star and the idea what this, yeah? So the... The idea of the star, in the book of Job, angels are often referred to as, they were referred to as the morning stars. The idea of him being in heaven and cast out of heaven as well, we know from the, also, the book of Job actually gives us a lot of insight on these things, that the devil even now has, has access to heaven. I don't know if we realize that or understand that, but in the spirit world, uh, in, the, in the book of Job, you see the devil himself come. And so how I understand this passage, and many people understand this passage, is that at this point, finally, the devil is cast from heaven. And, and as he comes down, there is the loosing of these, these demons. And that's described in verse number three. There came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth but these as we see in just a minute these locusts are not they look like locusts but they're they're not creatures as we're accustomed to and they definitely seem demonic it says here the locusts upon the earth to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power and it was commanded that they should hurt not the grass don't eat the grass don't eat any vegetation or trees but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man, 
And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. Now, don't, don't lose me as we go through this because it's going to be a point of significance at the end. We're supposed, to be, we're supposed to be gripped with the intensity of this here. Now, let's go on. So verse number, verse number six again, In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, shall desire to die, and death shall not flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. These are terrifying creatures. And I think, and, and so we don't know how literal exactly this is. I mean, I, I, am, I always lean toward interpreting it as literally as possibly, unless we're given reason not to. Yes, sir? If I had to design a murder drone, I might turn to the book of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, these are, these are terrifying creatures. So verse 8, and they had, oh, we saw that, verse 9. And they had breastplates, and as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. Now, we know that the bottomless pit, again, we see the abyss, the pit, the devil himself will be locked in the bottomless pit toward the end of the book of Revelation. This is, again, the place of right now, there are angels that have fallen that God has reserved in chains of darkness in the bottomless pit, even now. And so at this time, they're going to be loosed. And the king of the angel, of the, the king who's the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand. And I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three, by these three, was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. We already saw in the four horsemen, we saw the, the death of a third. And now of the, of the two-thirds remaining, another third of that. So at this point, 50% of the population of, of the earth has perished at the second woe. Verse 19, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, 
for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now, we come to the conclusion. The point of everything we've read, obviously we, we see the wrath of God revealed. But now, the lesson, I think, is in verse 20. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. What is the reaction of these people to the judgment of God? The reaction is, we will still do what we want to do. So, I think it's important for us to realize as we think about the wrath of God that's revealed here, is that God's wrath is not being poured out on people who, well, if I'd only known better, I would have changed my mind. Right? It's not what we see here. We see a group of people whose heart is set on disobedience, whose heart is set on I will be my own God. And what's interesting is this, the depth of the depravity of a person's heart here is actually revealed more and more with the judgment. In fact, and again, I referenced this a couple weeks ago, C.S. Lewis made this point that there's no one in hell, there's no one in hell that's saying, boy, I wish I'd lived my life differently. We assume that, Right? But there's no Bible to back that up. The rich man, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, rich man, he does say, warn my brothers, but he never says, I did wrong. I should have made better choices. He said, I was rich, Lazarus was poor, now I'm tormented. He said that, but you never, you'll never hear a voice of repentance. And with these people, again, you do not hear a voice of repentance because those who are without Christ, without Christ, there is no desire in the human heart to repent. There's no desire. See, the way, the way that it works, and I have, to be, I have to be careful theologically here, but it's an important, it's very important truth. No one, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there is none that seeketh after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, to this very day, there's not a single person who is a Christian. There's not a single person who has repented that has repented because they said one morning, you know what? I made a great mistake of my life. I need to seek after God. The natural part of man is to go in the opposite direction of God. Now, what changes that? What changes that? God changes that. God changes that. You see, because in our natural state, who we are, we do not want to be saved. There are no people who want to be saved. And, and that's important. And we see, we see that taught in the book of Romans. 
And we see that outlined here in Revelation. There's no, no people are, want to be saved. That's what makes the love and grace of God so astounding. Not only did he come to save us, he came to save us from even ourselves. Because we are about our own destruction. Now, here's where I would part ways with others theologically. This is important. The Bible says that God does call all men to repentance. So at some point in every person's life, some grace breaks through. Some grace breaks through. And some of my Christian friends would say, well, when God's great grace breaks through, you have no choice. You're just going to believe. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. No man comes unless God draws him first. But some people even resist the gracious drawing. Why that is, we don't know. That's a great mystery. But we all have to remember, none of us chose Jesus. He chose us. And when people reject the grace of God, they pers persist in their unbelief. And so as you think about the judgment, we could get a view here that's like, wow, how could God do that? And we're shown here... The fact that they do not repent, even when they, they are... We think, man, if people could just get a glimpse of hell, well, surely then they would repent. They have a glimpse of it here in the book of Revelation. And do they repent? They do not. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to a person's heart, when God's grace, when God's grace shines in someone's life, that is the opportunity to salvation. Because in our own sinful desires, we will never, we never desire it on our own. That's an important frame of reference, I think, for us. Because even as Christians, we have to grapple with and understand just, it's a difficult thing to come to terms with. The intensity of the wrath of God. And the lesson we see here is that the hearts of men and women Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, our hearts are bent against him. Even in the face, both Romans taught us that in the, in the face of his goodness, men still resist. And in the face of his judgment, people still resist. But I am thankful, and aren't you thankful, that we have seen his grace. And it's nothing that we've done. It's not because of our goodness or our turning to him. Because he set his love on us. He came to redeem us. To save us from ourselves. And to save us from the judgment that is to come. It's an important, it's an important truth. This passage explains it to us. It reminds me of Genesis. The group here, it reminds me of Genesis 6-5. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we see another similar time in the world. Right before Noah. God's about to call Noah to build the ark. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it's been, a, it's been the problem of, of mankind from the very beginning. God's wrath will be revealed someday. But we who are his will get to see his glory and his beauty, the curtain pulled back in his glory and his beauty, we don't fear the wrath to come. And praise the Lord for that. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that uh, we have these scriptures to teach us about you. Lord, there's, there's no greater knowledge in this world than knowledge of you and who you are. So we, we just come humble before you tonight. We submit to you that you are our creator, you are God, you are almighty. And we thank you for your salvation, for your long-suffering forbearance. That you saw sinners like us and you, you saw fit to redeem us. We praise you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.